there, Pioneers, and welcome to episode number 301. Today's episode is really an interesting one as well as exciting. We're going to be talking about elements of raising your own dairy animals. And get this one. This one is very interesting. Your own year-round vegetables and tilapia. So fish using hydroponics. So not only are you raising your own fish. So for those of you who are in, you know, more landlocked areas or don't have a river to go fishing in or whatnot and want to be able to raise vegetables in a greenhouse because my interview today is with somebody who lives in an area that's not warm enough to raise vegetables year round due to the colder winter months but by using a greenhouse that uses hydroponic water growing for the vegetables it also means that they can grow their own fish and so they are raising their own tilapia year round so that's a really fun and different aspect and avenue for us to go down that we're going to be talking about in today's podcast episode but for those of you who are like eh, i don't know like it's cool and i kind of want to hear about it but i'm not sure that i'm ready to like dive in and do that and maybe you're like yes i've been waiting to hear for something like this because i really want to dive in and do that we're also going to be talking about doing alternative methods or ways of doing thing on the farm which is definitely with hydroponics and fish, right? But also talking about how to make having dairy animals, including cows versus goats, etc., how to do that in a way where you're not tied to the farm 24-7 or how to do it if you still have a busy life. I'm really excited for today's episode, not only because of this content that we're going to get into in this interview here in just a moment, I also want to bring up different ways and resources and avenues for those of us who maybe don't have all the perfect parts of a homestead in place yet. In an ideal world, we would be raising all of our own food. We would have a local source if we didn't, some like our neighbor that we knew down the street that we would be able to then barter with. And I'm talking like in a perfect world. And a lot of us have certain aspects and certain places of this in place already or working towards that. But I think it's important for us to also do what works best for us, no matter what season we may happen to be in, which is why today's podcast episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. ButcherBox contacted me a couple of months ago and asked if I would be interested in trying some of their products. And at first I emailed them back and I'm like, well, we raise all of our own meat. You know, we raise our own grass fed beef. We raise our own meat chickens. I've got the hens for laying eggs. We raise our own organic grass fed pork. Like I don't really need it. Like I think your company's awesome that you offer to people, but I don't personally need that. And then I started, they came back and they said, well, you know, we also have a seafood option. And then I started thinking about it. And I'm like, you know what, I am very, very fortunate that we are at a place uh, in our lives and that we have the property and the space to be able to raise all of our own meat. But I actually know a lot of people who aren't in that right now. It's something that they want to do down the road. And actually have people who are like, you know, I don't ever really want to raise my own livestock. I just want to do the fruits and the vegetables. I don't want to bring the responsibility of livestock on, or it's not something that I have any intention of doing in the near future. And so I think that ButcherBox is a great product and a great place to support if that's where you're at, where you don't have a local person that you could get it from or raise it yourself. So I actually emailed them back and I said, you know what? I would love to try your seafood because we are able to go crabbing in our little tiny 17, 20 some, it's over 20 years old, actually ski boat in the bay for crab, Dungeness crab where we live. And we also get salmon, but that's the only seafood that we're able to get ourselves and that we put in the freezer and, and preserve up and have. So there's lots of other types of seafood that we just don't ever have because for seafood, I want it to be wild caught and done so in an ethical manner. And especially with any of the other types of chicken, beef, pork, etc. I want heritage breed. I want it 100% grass fed and 100% grass finished. And we're able to do that. But if I go to buy it, so for whatever reason, if I want extra cuts of something, because sometimes I just want chicken wings or chicken breasts occasionally. 
My son loves like buffalo wings. And when we butcher our chickens, we butcher them whole and I freeze them whole and I'll roast a whole chicken. There are some times where I want just a specific cut. And so then I'll go to the store and that'll be something that I'll look to pick up. And it's very, very, very hard for me to find 100% grass fed, truly free range organic chicken, not where they're just saying it is, but they're not really if you look at the conditions. And that's really, really important to me as well as being organic. So I started looking at ButcherBox and I said, yeah, actually, I would like to try some of your guys's items when I started to see what they stood for and how they source from small farmers who don't have um, the network or enough customers for their products. And ButcherBox is that in between. So I was, I don't want to say I was really skeptical, but I'm like, I don't really know how well we're going to like it. And I actually had them send me some beef as well and some pork as well as the seafood because I wanted to be able to compare it to the chicken and the beef that we raise ourselves here. And then I also put in some of the seafood that we're not able to get ourselves that I haven't had in years. So we got some of their halibut. I have not purchased halibut. So that was just means we don't eat it. And I don't even know how many years to tell you the truth. So the box came. Here's the interesting part. So I went ahead and put in my order with them, which they covered in exchange for me trying it out because they knew I didn't really need it uh, just in full transparency. And so I got an email that has your tracking. So they look because this was part of it is I'm like, how is it going to arrive to me? Is it really going to still be frozen solid? How does this deal in shipping, etc.? So from where they're shipping it, they look at how far away you live and the time of year. And if it requires dry ice, then they'll put it with dry ice. Otherwise, they pack the box really, really well so that it will still be frozen solid when it reaches you. So the delivery guy, because we live way out in the boonies, you guys. The delivery man, bless his heart, did not get to my house until 7.30 p.m. at night. He came up in his little van. So that meant that the meat had not been in a refrigerated area for a very long time, since at least that morning, right? Because it was so late in the day. (laughs) And I opened up the box. I was so impressed. It was still every single piece was frozen solid. So there hadn't been any type of thawing issues. So I could pop it right into the freezer without any type of worry. And as of to date, we ate the halibut, which was phenomenal. I plan on getting more. We also got lobster, which I didn't know how it was going to come because I don't actually like lobster. But my husband, I know I, it, people hear this and they're shocked. I don't like lobster. I know I'm probably weird. But my husband loves lobster. And when I saw that was an option, I'm like, I got to try this for him. And it comes, so it comes shucked. So it's just the lobster tail meat and it's already shucked in in this nice little vacuum sealed package. I, I, I don't know what I was expecting. I think I actually expected to see like a frozen solid lobster tail. That's not how it comes. <laughs> so that was really exciting. And then um, I got we got steaks and we got some sausage and we got some chicken. And so I already tested their ground beef because I really wanted to see what it looked like next to our ground beef and taste I really couldn't tell much any a taste difference. I, I did it in meatballs. So, you know, there's a little bit of flavoring when you're making meatballs, of course. But I really couldn't tell as far as texture goes and as far as taste goes. I didn't taste any difference between theirs and our ground beef. The only difference that I will say that I did notice, and it was slight, but I did notice it, is our ground beef is a darker red color than theirs was. Um, ours is a was a a darker more vibrant deep red color um, when it's thawed out and and looking at it side by side than theirs and I think theirs was slightly leaner than ours which isn't a bad thing um it just an observation with the amount of fat that came out while I was cooking it theirs was a little bit leaner which for a lot lot that I'm not that's not a negative just a side-by-side comparison but that was really the only difference that I saw But everything else, like I said, flavor, texture, all of those things, I really couldn't tell a difference between theirs and ours. Just a very slight difference as far as the fat content and the the color of the meat. Ours is a little bit darker um, than this particular batch that I got from them. So the exciting thing is, though, I think ButcherBox is an excellent option for getting that 100% grass-fed and not just grass-fed, but grass-finished beef. A lot of people don't know that it can say grass-fed beef if they've been fed grass for a certain percentage of their life, but they can still be grain-finished and fed grain, even if it says grass-fed. So it needs to say 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef 
to get true all grass-fed. And that's really important for us because the difference between 100% grass-fed versus some that still have been fed grain is the actual fat that you're getting. 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef is high in omega-3. If it's fed corn and or a lot of other grain products, then it's higher in omega-6. And we want the omega-3s. That, from a health standpoint, is what we are after. So one of the awesome things that ButcherBox is offering for listeners of the podcast is for a very limited time, they are doing, if you are a new member, meaning you're not signed up and already using ButcherBox, you get a free essentials bundle in your first box, your first order that you place with them. So get this. You get this for free with your first box, you guys. Three pounds of chicken breast, two pounds of pork chop, and two pounds of ground beef. And this is all using grass-fed, grass-finished, where applicable, and organic, true, free-range from small farmers type of quality in your first box. So how to make sure that you get all of that free meat added to your first order? You want to use butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today. So no spaces, no slashes. Again, that's butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today to get your free essentials bundle. Okay, now to today's interview and podcast episode. So today's guest I've been teasing is Andrea Vinson. And it wasn't until 2012 that they pulled their kids out of school to homeschool and then a whole new world opened up to them. They, very similar to me, had some different health problems. So they started trying to grow their own food. I know from the messages and the emails that you guys send me and the reviews that that is where a lot of you are at as well. And they now have, get this, that's a relatively short period of time, honestly, to go from, from nothing to this. They have over 100 head of cattle. 40 pigs, 200 chickens, 15 beehives, along with sheep, dogs, cats, ducks, turkeys, etc. And they have a 22,000 square foot of garden space that they are using to produce their own fresh vegetables and fruit. But that's also where they have this large aquaponics, aquaponics, sorry, not phonics, <laughs> aquaponics greenhouse that they raise their vegetables in year round that also then in turn feeds the tilapia and provides them with a fresh fish source. They raise all of their own meat and are launching a meat business to sell to the public, along with eight dairy cows that they milk, and they make their own dairy products from yogurt to cheese to kefir to sour cream and more. And so I am really excited to introduce and have Andrea on the podcast. So let's get to it. I am super excited to welcome Andrea to the Pioneering Today podcast. So Andrea, welcome. Thank you. I'm very honored to be here. Oh, yeah. I am really excited to chat with you because you are doing some very interesting things that I haven't even done yet on our homestead. And I think it's so much fun to get to learn from other people. But I know a little bit about you. This is so our first official meeting, even though it's all done virtually. So I'd love for you to give a little bit of background on kind of how you guys got going down this path and then and what you guys are doing now for everybody listening in to kind of catch them up to speed. Okay. So I'll try to make this the shortened version. There's so much <laughs> to stories. So back in 2012, well, even before that, we live in the country and we're in Arkansas. So around us, everyone gardens, everyone, you know, grows a little bit of produce here and there. But back in 2012, we start, my husband started having some health problems, which led us to um, a farm. We met a homeschool family with a bunch of kids and all the kids were like respectful and hard workers and they were growing all this food. And we just kind of looked around. We we're like, wow, we want this. So what started as for health led us down this total path we did not even um, know that we needed. And so our first step was we got some pigs and a couple cows and we took our kids out of school and started homeschooling them and we jokingly say that's our first step off the deep end that just opened our world up to so many interesting people that we were living right around us that we didn't even know and so all of that just snowballed a little bit at a time we didn't start everything all at once into um, gardens and then more gardens and then just one day I remember standing in the middle of my 
green bean row and thinking, I think I could grow a year's worth of green beans. I think I'm going to try that. And so it was just one thing after another. We started growing all our vegetables and then we started growing all our meat and uh, we got bees for pollination and for honey. And uh, we've got milk cows and just one thing led to another until here we are today. And we're actually launching a um, non-GMO meat business here in the next month to offer meat to others around us and around the country, more healthy, ethically raised meat that I just think should be available to everyone. So that's kind of our story in a nutshell. Oh my goodness. Well, there's so many similarities there. My journey also really began with the health aspect and then it is all mushroomed to where it is here and yeah. raising a year's worth of green beans. That was, that was where we started and now do a lot more. So that was really fun. How many acres do you guys have? My husband's grandpa was a very good businessman. He lived like he was poor, but he bought land every chance he got, $100 an acre here and there. And so he left, it's a 700 acre farm to my mother-in-law, my husband and his brother. And his brother served 25 years in the Navy. He's not really into the farming thing like we are, but he supports us and does whatever he can to help us. And then my mother-in-law um, has always worked and things. So they just, they're wonderful. They let us do whatever we want. So we, we pretty much farm about 700 acres. Oh my gosh, that is a big farm. Yes. <laughs> wow. Well, my hat off to you. That is, that's a big operation. And so on that acreage, what type of animals and about approximately like how many head or flock, you know, whatever we're talking there, right. are you guys raising right now? To be fair, we started our homestead on about between five and 10 acres. So our main homestead is right up here at our house. And then the lands are like for our big herd of cows that we started. And then we grow pine trees and we cut our own hay and things like that. So we have about two years ago now, we had just a few cows and then we bought a large beef herd of mixed cows. Currently, we have about 120 head. Then we have about six sheep. Uh, we just play around with the sheep. We have a livestock guardian dog that stays with them. And we've thought about letting that grow organically just through them having babies and having like what they call a flirt of goats and sheep that rotate with our cows because we rotate our cows um, on rotational grazing. And we have, I have eight milk cows. Let's see, we have quite a few pigs right now, probably it's a lot for us, probably between 30 and 40. We're working up to having four sows that will be having piglets for us throughout the year. We have probably 20 hives of bees and more dogs, cats, it just lots of chickens, probably 200 chickens for um, layers. And then this year we're going to grow our largest batch of broilers. We've always grown like a couple hundred and we'll process them ourselves and keep some and sell some to local people. But this year we're planning to do probably around 2000 and offer those to sale for sale in our new meat business. So we're very excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's based, you definitely are self-sufficient, but it's also a business. So the livestock is, is twofold there. It's grown into that. Yes. Yeah. First, that's, the beginning was just self-sufficiency and then it, it just grow into, there's so many people that just don't have the ability to do this, but they want good quality food. And so it just kind of took on a life of its own. Yeah, no, I love that. And when you said 120 head of cattle, that's how big my dad's herd was when I was growing up. So it just immediately took me back and like, oh, I know, I know the cow part. We yes. didn't raise the, the chickens or the pigs when I was growing up. My dad only had cattle. But when you said that, I'm like, oh, I know exactly what y'all are doing right now. So yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. And in addition to all of that, you guys also have a really fairly good sized garden space. And I'm really intrigued because I've had a lot of people ask me and, and I don't have any experience in this aspect. And that is you do a large aquaponics greenhouse so you can have vegetables year round and you also raise tilapia. Yes, that was um, we started, like I said, growing all our vegetables outside and and I learned to can and things like that and just put up all the food, dehydrate all the different things to preserve the food. But I love salad. And so that was just one thing I never figured out how to have 
all winter long. And so that's where that idea was born. My husband kind of went down the rabbit hole and really got into that. It's so neat. Um, so he has tilapia in a big, it's called an IBC tote. And um, they do their thing, you know, eat and make waste. And then that goes through a whole system of like PVC pipes and things that feeds these beds that are in his greenhouse that are they have actually gravel in them there's no dirt in the whole system and so that water flows through there constantly and feeds those plants and it's amazing yeah that is fascinating so i'm curious one i know you said you're in arkansas but what what are your average winter temperatures because you'll be able to do it you know during the winter so i'm just kind of curious what your guys's winters look like we definitely get down into the teens. That's not uncommon. Uh, we don't usually go below that, but we do have cold weather to where um, we have to heat it just a little bit because um, not as much for the plants. Um, we have a couple of things in there, like we've grown tropical things that wouldn't survive here. Like we have a Meyer lemon tree growing right now and, and um, papaya tree and some things like that that definitely wouldn't make it here but we have to heat it just a little bit sometimes on those coldest nights because the fish would die. So we have toyed around. We haven't found the perfect way to heat it yet. We're still figuring all that out, but that's how that goes. Okay. I'm super curious. What kind of heat system are you currently using? What did you have to eat? Is it just like a, a type of heater that's that you plug yes. in? We, right okay. now that's what we're using. We've, we've used propane. We've, we've filled a bunch of like black barrels and put those in there, but, for the black to absorb heat. Mm -hmm. uh, his, honestly, his dream would be to, this would be a huge undertaking, but to dig up and do like the geothermal yeah. heating thing. And he's a big YouTube fan. He's a do-it-yourselfer. And um, so that would be his ultimate goal would be the geothermal. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. I was curious about the heating aspect and what your temperatures were because um, I'm not doing it hydroponically, but we have a, a high tunnel, which I don't heat right. it at all. And I'm able to grow lettuce um, pretty much year round, except during, honestly, like during December and January, it grows very little until about the end of January. It's just now starting to actually grow where I'll be able to start harvesting from it. It just is so slow growing the months of, of December and the first part of January that it is in there and alive, but it's not like right. it's harvestable. And then as right. we hit February, it just like explodes in there and then I'm able to do it. But I've toyed with the idea of playing with heat, but I've never I've never done any type of heat in there just to see if it's the temperature, or if it's the lack of daylight, because I don't use any artificial light in it either. Um, so anyway, so I was just really curious what your guys' steps were and, and what you were discovering with that, because I've kind of played around with that um, idea of trying to make it more productive during the, the dead of winter as yes. well. Yeah. So good to know that the the black filling them, I, I'm familiar with the method, but I haven't tried it, um, really didn't provide quite enough warmth then. Not quite enough to keep the fish alive. It might do the well with vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious with the with the fish so kind of walk me through the cycle of like you know how many you have in the space that you have in there you know how long does it take them to get to size how much you know work does it involve uh that type of thing yeah it's not um it's not super labor intensive i guess the the most labor intensive is getting the whole thing set up and then when you're starting with just like pure water, um, getting your pH and everything correct, took a little bit to get the plants to grow, like, you know, at the rate they should and things. So the fish are in there and then you can feed them whatever you want to. You can feed them spent vegetables and things. They'll eat that. They almost eat like a piranha. Like they'll just come up and just like boil on top of the water. It's kind of neat to see. But um, we also feed them some fish food and we're definitely seeing that, you know, they'll, they definitely grow slower if you're not giving them enough to eat. So I, they should be harvestable in a decent amount of time. I don't exactly know. That's more Ben's expertise, but um, ours took way longer than they should on our first round. And so we're realizing we need to really bump up the feed a little bit. And then, um, and we have, like I said, a rather large IBC tote there in. And I want to say he had, um, 
probably 30 in there or so. Um, and then they will tell you that tilapia will not reproduce on their own, that they won't spawn and reproduce in your system. But ours absolutely have. We've never had to buy any more fish. Mm. They will we'll actually see them because they're so small, they'll swim through the system and they'll come up in the beds and we'll pick them up and put them back in the tank. And <laughs> we never had to buy tilapia again since that first time. So he did have a mishap here a while back and he's still figuring all the logistics of what happened, but he lost several. So we may have to buy some this year, but we're waiting for the cold weather to pass. Um, so, but it's, it's really enjoyable to us. It's once we got it all set up, you just, if you want to grow lettuce, you just sprinkle the seeds basically on top of the rocks. And then as you might moisten them one time and then they just grow like crazy. It's pretty amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is, that is really fascinating. That's one of the things that here we could get salmon, you know, we have a salmon run and and then, you know, we do have some trout and stuff. So we do have some fish in our river, but we honestly don't really go fishing that often and get it. And so I love the idea of being able to have, and I do like tilapia, though I have a lot of reservations where I will buy it, obviously, commercially, just because I don't want it from China the way that they farm. And that's exactly. where a lot of commercial tilapia comes from. But like the way that you're doing it or, you know, like that, um, I really do enjoy because it it's a nice mild white fish. And so I'm very, yes. I'm very intrigued. So um, I'm going to have to dive into that and looking into that a little bit more. But it sounds like it's, not as I think I had visions in my head that it was going to be very like something I was dealing with a lot and really labor intensive. And so it sounds like once you get things set up, which is really obviously the case with anything new, but kind of once you right. get your infrastructure in place, it's really not too bad on the maintenance side. It's not at all. It's one of our less like least labor intensive things we do, honestly. So it's it's very enjoyable. And we've been able to grow all kinds of neat things out there year round that that really like cool weather um, but they're in there and they're protected and the water's flowing all the time and so like I really like bok choy and just all the lettuces and swiss chard all those types of things really thrive in there okay interesting I know you said that this is more your husband's realm so if you don't know the answer to this that's totally fine but I'm just kind of curious if you weren't looking at also being able to raise the fish. Um, what would be the advantage to going the aquaponic route uh, versus just in the ground inside a greenhouse? Right. Well, um, the for one, it just feeds the plants, so that flowing water, and then like with the fish, they're feeding them. If you don't have the fish, you can you can put supplements in the water, and they just grow like crazy. Um, and I don't think things like that are not necessarily native here would grow here in the ground, even in a greenhouse, maybe like the um, papaya tree likes that tropical climate climate um, because all that water flowing creates, it's very humid in there all the time. It's almost like a rainforest field. Uh. There'll be water like dripping and it's just, it's, it's just warm. And um, like I said, just very humid and things. Uh, we have tomatoes growing like now, um, all kinds of stuff that are real summer crops we can grow all year long. Okay. And that makes sense. So and I, I love, I love that um, because you're right. There is that different humidity level that you have in summer. And so you're really able to replicate that with yes. the onopop aquaponics so that makes a lot of sense okay thank you because I've honestly I've always thought that but I've never had anybody where I could ask them um and so I was trying to because I'm like like I said I could do the, the lettuce and some of those cool crops just fine in the ground here and so right. I'm like I'm like there has to be an advantage to doing it many people are probably like gosh girl you didn't know that um but that makes well, a lot of sense so <laughs> and there's probably more that I don't know so well you were talking about that the tilapia and that setup is actually one of the less labor intensive. So I'm going to assume that the dairy animals are probably your more labor intensive animal that you guys do. Is that correct? They are a bit. They're, um, they're probably my favorite though. So I, I guess I don't mind it because they're just, they are my girls. That is my animals here on this homestead. So. I've enjoyed them and I did not even grow up in the country. I grew up on a golf course actually. 
And um, so to me, this just feels like this is my calling and this, the milk cows are part of it. And so I, I really enjoy them. Okay. So I have thought about getting dairy animals in the past, but honestly, the knowing that it's a daily maintenance when they're in, in milk um, and being tied down to them has been one of the things that has held me back. And also like, would I really be able to use all of the milk? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so do you milk every day, twice a day, or what's your system for milking? Well, we grew up, we're pretty much in dairy cattle country. Like we have dairies that were all around us. Most of them have gone out now, but that's what my husband did growing up from the time he was like 12 on up. He worked at a dairy and all of them that I've ever heard of were milked at 4 a.m. and 4 p.m. And it took hours each time. And they missed so many activities and things with their kids because they were so tied down. And so when we first got our dairy cows, we've started with one. Um, it took my husband a bit to like let go of that mentality that we could step outside of the box because people in this homesteading community, especially on YouTube, which is where we share our story, we were seeing them do it a bit differently. So to answer, no, I do not milk morning and night. And I, I honestly don't even milk every day. Uh, I know that's hard to wrap your mind around, but uh, we've just made it work for us. And uh, you don't have to do that to own a milk cow. So how, so, I, okay. So now when you said you don't even milk every day, cause I know some people will do like calf sharing where they'll milk once a day and then they'll shut the cat the calf will be with the cow for 12 hours and then they'll take it away and then they'll milk and they'll let him back in again is that kind of the same principle that you're using yes like and so you'll just keep the calf with the mom if you know you don't want to milk that yes. day okay we keep the calf with the mom and then we will put the calf up at night and they spend a cozy night in the barn with feed and hay and water and um and then I milk the cows in the morning and then put them back together but I don't even do that seven days a week they do just fine with it uh the calf our calves in our experience will just drink whatever basically you let them um and if if the mom the milk I call them moms I talk about them like they're people but if the cow has way too much milk at the beginning now you might want to milk every day for a bit just to give her some relief if the calf can't keep up but it doesn't take very long at all just maybe a couple of weeks that calf is going to be draining that cow you're going to have to separate them even to get any milk for yourself so you don't have to worry about that they just couldn't drink it all and my cow will dry up and no that calf will drink if you let them whatever the cow has um, after even just a couple of weeks Okay. Yeah. And I've noticed like with our beef cattle, which I know are, are not, the milk production is obviously different in the breeds, right. but we'll even reach to the point where like the calf will be a yearling and some of the moms, not all of them, but some of them won't even wean them at that point. And so we actually yeah. have to separate them because it's like, okay, you, you have been on long enough. We need to let her dry yes. up so that she can yes. sometimes put on weight, just different ish instances. Um, yes. So, okay. Now, to do that, though, it sounds like you really do need to have, if you don't have a full barn, you need some type of like milking shed or somewhere where you can pin them up and or separate them. Um, it, because with our beef cattle, we just have them out in the field. We have like a round right. pin if we ever need to, but we don't actually have like a covered barn area with yeah. stalls and that type of thing. So it sounds like if you're with the dairy cow that you really do need to have a little bit more of a, a covered type structure. Well, it's good, but I have separated ours. We have a corral also. And if we have like somebody put up in the barn, like a beef calf or something that's had a problem, I've separated them in the corral many times. They're cows, you know, so like you said, your beef cows are standing out, you know, in a pasture. Uh, and these are used to that too. Like if I didn't have them in the corral, they, they more than likely wouldn't be in the barn all night. They'd be out milling around and out in the open. So it's not like that is cruel just to put them in a corral for the night. Okay. So then if you guys just want to go somewhere like on vacation, then you just let the moms and the calves go out. So you can't actually leave 
even when they are in milk production, you can leave for a while, provided obviously you have someone checking that they have feed and water, like all the normal stuff. But absolutely. Yes, because we have eight at this point. So we have at least two at least in milk all the time. So we just put them together. They'll just keep mom drained and they're happy. And we've not had any trouble with it. Okay. Now, did you also do, I know you said that you had some sheep in, in I think you said goats too, because you guys do the rotational grazing, which I love. As far as having a dairy goat versus a dairy cow. Now, I know obviously you're going to get a lot more milk from a cow than you would a dairy goat. But um, I think a lot of people feel more comfortable starting with dairy goats because they are smaller. So do you have any uh, thoughts on choosing one versus the other or maybe like pros or cons between those two dairy animals? Well, I have milked quite a few goats. We've made a lot of goat milk soap and we've drank goat's milk and all that. Um, For one, our family prefers the taste of cow's milk. So that's a big kicker is if is what does your family want to drink um, and and make things out of, you know, as far as yogurt and cheese and those things. Um, And also just. I have a lot of things going on here and. I'm homeschooling now to high schoolers in the past. It was, you know, they were younger, but um, so I don't want to milk every single morning. And when I was milking goats, I pretty much had to, to get enough to do what I wanted to do. So this allows me, I can go out there a few times a week and get all I could ever want and usually have some to sell to neighbors to make some feed costs back without doing it seven days a week. So that's a big thing for me. And also, in my experience, some some of the goats we've had, they can be a little temperamental as well. Like I've had goats kick way more than I've ever had cows kick. And on that note, I would encourage people, don't be afraid like, oh, they're going to kick me and kill me. And that was me at the beginning because I knew nothing about it. I was like, they're just, they're going to kick me in the chest. I'm a big goner, you know, but cows don't even kick that way. Like they, if they kick more than likely, they might put their foot in your milk bucket because they're going to raise it up and lower it down. It does. They don't kick. I'm not going to say they never can. It may not be impossible, but they don't generally kick to the side of their body. You know, they kick up and down or back. So it's not really something to be afraid of if that's what's holding you back. Okay. Now, one of the things because we have with our beef cattle they're not halter broke i mean they're just out you know we can we do use they're grass-fed but we use a little bit of grain every now and then because if they do right. get out you know that thing like i get them in with gray that's how i get them oh, in yeah. horse trailers if we need, we're taking them to bulls or just different things like that or into pens um but that they're not tame and they're not broke so right. with a milk cow like i've heard stories of where people will buy a cow for milk that's supposed to be trained and like halter broken trained to milk. Um, but then they get it home and it doesn't seem like that's really the case. Have you ever had right. any type of experiences with that? I've heard people that have contacted me like, what in the world do I do now? So um, I've never had one halter broke, but I see other people that do. But the way I've trained mine and I've trained a few that were absolutely wild that were mine like they were born here but once they get up to be milking age i start thinking ah this isn't gonna work but i would say give any cow if you get them home and you think what is going on give them a bit just let them start figuring out where where's the feed because you're gonna have to give them some sort of a treat to get them to stand anywhere unless you're just gonna absolutely tie them up and try to do it that way and i mean that's a personal preference but i give mine a little bit of grain every day when I milk them to help their milk production because they're losing a lot by providing you that milk. So whatever you choose for that to be, you know, and they will figure that out and they just have a different personality than beef cows. They're very personable. They're usually pretty sweet. And so they're going to figure that out really quickly and they're going to want that. And mine will stand there. If they're eating, they will stand there all day and let me milk or do whatever, um, every one of them. So I think most of them can be trained. Okay. So that's, Oh, see it. I just assumed again, this is not having any dairy cow experience, only beef that they were all halter broke. 
yeah. have them in a stanchion that actually, you know, when they go in for the food, then you can kind of close it around to, to keep them immobile, at least for their head. Or do you just let them freestand and eat? Mine just freestand. They're just, they're spoiled. Like the days that I separate their calf, they know that the next morning they're going to get milked. So they're, they're standing there waiting on me, wanting their grain. And so I just <laughs> open the gate. They walk into an open barn like they could leave if they wanted to. And they just stand there and eat out of their little trough and I milk and I'm usually done before they are. And I only give them just a few pounds of feed. Then they actually just back up. They're so, so smart and so funny. They come in in the exact same order every day and they're just, they're creatures of habit. So um, as as long as they know the routine, they're going to do it. And what breed is your milk cows? Mostly Jersey. That's my favorite um, because they have such a high butterfat content. Um, I do have a brown Swiss. She's she's a really good cow. Um, and I have a milking shorthorn at this point. So, okay. Mostly Jersey. So when they're on the milk show, like you said, where you're kind of only milking them a couple of times a week, approximately how many gallons are you getting at that milking? The two I'm milking right now, their calves are getting older, but like probably, I don't know, they're big calves. Like I'm going to say eight months old. I could wean them very easily, but we didn't get the bull back in with them right away. So they're not about to drop another calf. So I'm just hanging on to them, milking them until someone else drops a calf. So I'm not just completely out of milk. And between them, I'm only getting a gallon right now, but they're way far into their, you know, milking cycle. But if you have a good jersey that she's just calved recently, you could easily get, you know, two or three gallons just from one cow. Okay. Because I've heard, and again, you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that when you are doing the calf share that you obviously get less milk than if you are not calf sharing right. her milking. So I was just kind of curious what that volume looks like. When we first started doing all this, we listened to a lot of, I don't know if you're familiar with Wardy Harmon at mm-hmm. Traditional Cooking School. We listened to her a lot and she, she had a podcast about that they will hold back milk from you because they know yeah. the calf is. They will. They absolutely will. If you let them stand there long enough and eat, they'll just let it down. Like it's, I guess it's like they can't hold it super long time. They'll let it down and you'll get like their richest, creamiest part after you've already milked them. You can stick the milkers back on there or if you're doing it by hand, you can milk a little bit more and that's where your cream comes in. Okay. And I'm a big fan of cream. So, (laughs) okay. Awesome. And I'm assuming, do you keep your milk raw? Do you pasteurize it? What's, what's your process? I keep it raw. My, mm-hmm. my kids, I say, have become milk snobs. They go to summer camps and things, and they don't like pasteurized milk. So we keep it raw. We strain it and um, get it chilled pretty quick. And then I even keep it raw when I make yogurt and I make raw milk cheese, which is just at lower temperatures and things like that. Yeah, which I have done actually. I purchased obviously the raw milk because we don't have a dairy cow and I've done some raw raw feta um, some different soft cheeses I haven't done hard cheeses yet but I'm curious because I do yogurt but it's with a I'm lucky enough that we have a dairy near us that's organic and grass-fed um, yeah. and I can get it in the glass bottle with the cream on top you know so it's not yeah. homogenized but it is vat pasteurized so it's a lower pasteurization obviously than what most commercial milk is but it is still pasteurized so with my yogurt i do heat mine up and then put the culture in so when you're doing the raw milk yogurt and i actually did some tests with the milk where i didn't heat it and and made it and then somewhere Mm -hmm. i did to see the difference in the thickness levels which is usually the the purpose of heating your milk for yogurt anyways so with the raw milk yogurt i'm curious uh how do you do your raw milk yogurt and do you notice that it is runnier or do you use on the back end like a little bit of gelatin or something like that to thicken it it's it is definitely a little bit runnier um but my favorite way to do it is just i make it in the instapot these days but you could do it on the stove is just heat up just like a cup or two get it hot so you're not heating up and killing off all the good stuff out of the whole batch of yogurt. Mm -hmm. And then I dissolve a little bit of gelatin in it from the get go and then put the rest of the cold milk in there. So it 
cools that way back down and put my culture in there and then let it culture just at a really low temperature and it is thick as can be. Okay, so you are using a little bit of the gelatin to get that thicker texture on there. Yeah, because yeah. I don't necessarily like it runny. I don't either, <laughs> which is why I hate mine. I know when I use this term, some people kind of frown, but I am lazy where I can be. And so oh, yes. I do not like to strain my yogurt. I need it. I want no. it to be thick with the process from the get-go. I'm not going to take the time to strain it, but I like really thick, creamy yogurt. I like, I'll strain it if I'm making like, obviously, you know, like a, a yogurt cheese or something like that that require yeah. pressing for re regular cheese. But when it comes to yogurt, I'm like, I, I don't have time for that. Like, it just has no. to be thick from the get-go. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I agree. Oh, I love it. So do you guys um, also just do all of the, the milk from the animals just for your own personal use? Just obviously like drinking and yogurt and, and kefir and cheese and all of that. Or are you guys planning to also do that as part of your business? Do you sell the milk or sell some of the cheese products or? I've never sold cheese just because it takes me like two gallons to make a batch of cheese. So it. I feel like it would be so expensive and like take so much milk. I've never ventured into cheese selling, but we've sold lots and lots of milk over the last few years. Um, but currently I just told my customers like a month ago that I needed a break because every so often I just, I get too over scheduled and I'm like, okay, something's got to give here. And with trying to, we're trying to build a website and get this meat business going. That was just one of the things that had to go. So currently I'm just milking for us. It might be something that in the future I offer for people coming here to pick up meat. Um, in Arkansas, it's legal to sell raw milk, but they do have to come to your farm to get it. So it would have to be people, you know, willing to come pick it up. So we'll see where that goes in the future. Um, and my production's way down right now. So that's another reason I'm not selling currently is because I would be milking probably seven days a week to get enough for us and to sell. Gotcha. Yeah. And it, like you said, that it, that does become a lot of work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is probably again, going to sound like a silly question to some people, but I'm super curious with your dairy animals so when you breed the dairy the girls and it's not a heifer if it's a steer um then do you just raise that up and it becomes a butcher animal just like you would beef except it's a dairy breed or how do you guys manage the offspring that is exactly what we do we raise up the steers and um they have become beef um prior to now we've just raised a few steers a year just for us and and immediate family and friends and things like that and um so that was way more profitable for us to turn it into beef for someone than to take it to like the sale barn the auction um, you might get like a cup maybe a 150 or $200 for a grown out steer that's a dairy breed at the auction. They're just worth nothing here. Mm -hmm. But if you grow them out, I mean, they're still very good beef. Your steaks will just be smaller, things like that, but they're not less quality necessarily. So um, that's something I'd encourage people is you could take a dairy cow and turn it into your dairy needs as well as your beef. You know, if you don't want a herd of beef cows necessarily. Um, and you could share it with someone else and help pay for your costs and things and your time. Raising the steers, especially for that are a dairy breed, obviously, but then raising them for the beef. Are you finding that they come to a good butcher weight at about the same time, like at two years old? Or what's your guys' experience? I just have no experience with dairy breeds, which is, I'm sure is very apparent to anybody listening in. It's about the same timeline. I would say two years old is a good thing to shoot for. They're obviously not going to be as beefy. They're not going to have as much meat on them. If you're selling it to someone like as raised out beef, you know, and you're charging by like what they call the rail weight at the processor, which is basically after they've skin it and things like that, but it still has all the bones and everything. It's going to be lighter, obviously, just because it's, it's, they're made to make milk right. and beef. It's like I said, it's still very good. You still get plenty, you know, for just a family, you know, that's just wanting to venture into raising beef. That answered one of the questions that I've had was kind of like, what's your best practice for managing the offspring of a dairy cow? 
And so you definitely answered it for me. Well, I feel like I have learned so much about so many actually different topics. Thank you for answering my questions as we went down a little bit of the rabbit hole of the aquaponics and in the greenhouse and all of that. You guys are just doing an incredible amount of different things on your farm, which is really fun. So for everybody listening in, if they want to check out more of what you guys are doing and see some of the different things, where's the best place for listeners to connect with you? The best place where we show our life here is on YouTube and our channel is VW Family Farm. And then we have a really awesome group of people that follow us on there that we created a Facebook group actually. And it's also called VW Family Farm. And then we have an Instagram page. It's at VW Family Farms with an S. And that actually is our teenage daughter. She manages that for us. And um, people like chatting with her as well. She's into like uh, modest fashion, I guess you would say Western fashion and just all things teenage girls. So and farm. So it's pretty fun place too. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to go check out your guys' YouTube channel because I really want to see this greenhouse and the aquaponics in action. So I'm going to go and uh, have some fun looking at that. And it was such a pleasure to get to know you. And thanks for sharing uh, your knowledge and uh, inspiring us to try some new things. You're so very welcome. And one last thing I wanted to mention, uh, my husband has a whole playlist on the aquaponics for anyone that's interested on YouTube. And he also did a mini setup where it was like a, a two level, like PVC pipe. You could build it in just a couple of hours and grew like on a patio, just for those who don't have an aquaponics greenhouse um, mm-hmm. and showed just with a little pump and a little Rubbermaid tote and stuff. Very simple. That'd be a great place to start if, you know, someone's wanting to venture into growing in water. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And I will, in the show notes, I always do a a blog post that accompanies the episodes. So I'll make sure and put a link in there to that playlist too, so that everybody has a easy way to go and and snack that and check it out. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. If you want to be able to look at any of the links and resources from today's episode, make sure you go to melissaknorris.com forward slash 301 because this is episode number 301. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And don't forget our sponsors for today are ButcherBox. You can go to butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today to get your free essential bundle before it goes away. I can't wait to be back here with you next week. Same time. Blessings in mason jars until then, my friends. Mm-hmm.